Welcome to the Elijah Rising podcast. Elijah Rising is an organization empowering women recovering from sexual exploitation. This episode is going to help you become more aware about the issue of sex trafficking and inspire you to take action. Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm Adam, and today I am joined by Dr. Vanessa Boucher. Dr. Boucher is an associate professor of political science at TCU, just right up the, just a little further north of us here today, uh, creator of humantraffickingdata.org and co-founder of Severa, a wellness company providing employment to survivors of sex trafficking in India and the United States. Welcome to the podcast, Vanessa. Thanks so much for having me. We're excited to have you um, today on the Elijah Rising podcast. We're going to ask the question, does Houston have a trafficking problem? And so Vanessa, you are a well-known uh, researcher of the, the issue of sex trafficking. You've been published numerous times uh, in various journals and books. You're a principal investigator on a number of federally funded human trafficking projects. Um, so before we jump into the main question, uh, I just thought it would be good to ask, what caused you to make sex trafficking a focus of your career and of your research? It is kind of an interesting story. When I was an undergrad, and this was going back to the late 90s, right? So over about 20 years ago, um, as an undergrad, I was a history major, and okay. I focused primarily on American history. Um, and I took entire semester long classes on things like the trans transatlantic slave trade, women's suffrage, the civil rights movement. Yeah. I found myself in each of those classes, asking the question, what would I have done had I lived during those times. And, you know, if I was going to be completely honest with myself, the answer was, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know the answer to that. Now I had grown up in a very, in a very loving and privileged environment yeah. and had really not known much suffering in my own personal lived experience. Um, and really when I was taking these classes very much, felt like, well, I know that there's still suffering in the world today, yeah, but maybe yeah. not to the extent that it used yeah. to be. Yeah, right? it was worse. This it was worse. The, now it's better. Yeah, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And so I don't know if I could prove to myself that I would do anything because, you yeah. know, the world isn't so bad anymore, right? And then I read Gary Haugen's book that he published called The Good News About Injustice. Yeah. And it completely rocked my world. And for the first time, I realized, oh, wow, the world is not as I've experienced it. And in yeah. fact, my experience is not common. It's actually the exception rather than the rule, globally speaking. Yeah. And now is my time to prove to myself that I will do something. I will stand in the gap and I will use my privilege that I've experienced in my life to privilege others. I'll wow. set aside my own comfort. I'll set aside, um, you know, the, the things that I want to achieve for myself and, and, and really kind of get my hands dirty on the issues that matter for other people and the suffering that people face every day. So I knew immediately upon finishing that book that I was going to do something in the realm of human rights, human trafficking. Mm. I didn't know quite what yeah. my path was extremely circuitous from that point <laughs> forward. Um, 
But finally, I landed, and I'll say, you know, in 2003, I was in Guatemala. I was doing an internship with with the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala City. And someone from the JTIP office in Washington, D.C. came down, and they wanted to go out on the streets in Guatemala City to see kind of like the worst zone of Guatemala Mm. City. What did trafficking look like at the street level? And so at about midnight, we took them out with an NGO that works. Um, very carefully down there, Casa Alianza. And so we all went out on the street. We, we saw it at the street level and I got physically sick to my stomach. Yeah. Um, I just from, just I, from I, seeing the injustice and what, just yeah. from the sights and the sounds and the smells, I guess. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I, yeah. previous to that, I had traveled to developing countries and seen some stuff, but I had never seen wow. girls in windows at, you know, upstairs with pimp at the floor level at yeah. literally girls who, you know, look to be 10 years old, 11, 12 years old. Yeah. And I got sick to my stomach and I couldn't handle it. And so at that point I thought, well, maybe I'm not supposed to be kind of frontline worker as it were, right? Maybe the work that I do in this space is supposed to use some different facet um, of my skill set because clearly I don't have the stomach, literally. Yeah, right, handle, right. You know, um, And long story short, in 2008, I found myself in my PhD program and I was, you know, I had between in that, I guess, 10 year period, I had read every book that (laughs) was coming out on modern day slavery, on trafficking. And there were two things that I noticed about it. Number one was that it was extremely international in nature. There was almost nothing written about trafficking in the United States. And even up until that point in time, the the tip report didn't even yeah. report on trafficking in the United States. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. I thought, well, gosh, this is peculiar. How is it possible that there's trafficking happening everywhere else and not in the U S and I knew that that wasn't true. It was just the way that the issue had been framed mm. up till that point. And the second thing I noticed was that all of this stuff that I was reading was extremely um, anecdotal and journalistic in yeah. nature. And there was really no empirical evidence. And that started to become a problem because then there were scholars that were saying, look, this is a moral, you know, this is moral it's panic. A moral issue. This is yeah. just a bunch of, yeah, this is just a bunch of, you know, radical feminists married with evangelical Christians <laughs> trying to come together to stop prostitution, you know? Yeah, right. And, right. And the, the fact is they have a point because if we don't understand it from an sure. empirical perspective and we're only addressing it in this, like, well, this one-off person said this, then absolutely their arguments are completely valid. Sure, so absolutely. Yeah. I decided at that point that maybe, you know, I could make a difference by bringing to bear my new statistical methodologies that I had, you know, been yeah. working on in my PhD program to study human trafficking in from an empirical um, standpoint in the United States, but then also globally. Yeah. So that's kind of my trajectory. And it's even from there, it's taken many different pathways and many different routes, but, um, but that's how it all started. Yeah. I love that story, Vanessa. I mean, I'm that it's so fascinating for one, but I'm just, it feels, um, it's so cool to hear you say like, well, I was, you know, looking at history. I was informed by history, which caused me to think like, you know, that's history, but what am I going to do? What am I going to do right now, right here? And then you start looking around and it, yeah, it's like, 
the data wasn't there. It was a lot of anecdotal, you know, uh, stories and things like that. And I, and so, so here's how I want to respond to that though. Like, I wonder, is that still the case? Like I'm, I am familiar with your research. That's why I've asked you to come onto the podcast. Right. But in my perception and our perception here at Elijah rising doing this work, you know, I've been doing anti-trafficking work for nearly a decade now. And it's still my perception that there is a severe lack of focused research on sex trafficking. I would say even still globally, but I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Like that really was the emphasis for so long, but most especially here in the United States, you know, for us, you know, when we do awareness uh, events and things like that, or even just even even responses to the podcast, sometimes it's like people ask all these questions and it just feels like it's constantly so difficult to come by data, to come by peer-reviewed research, to come by the statistics that often help us make the case that there is actually a problem. And often what we can find is vague or anecdotal, exactly what you're saying. Um, or the problem is just like really generalized or nationalized. Like it's, it's even more difficult difficult to find localized research. Um, and so I guess the question I was going to ask you, and, and I still want to, but I feel like I under, I know what your answer is going to be now, but like, is, is that, is that an accurate perception? Like, is this still a problem? And if so, like, what do you see as somebody who's in the field? Like, what do you see is, or are the biggest gaps in, um, in trafficking research right now? I definitely think that there's still a lot of, yeah. of questions that yeah. remain unanswered for sure. Yeah. And there's so much research that still needs to be done. Um, absolutely. That's absolutely true. And, yeah. and it does have to be done because what we're noticing now in the field, and I know you guys at Eliza Rising have probably experienced it a lot over the course of the last six months to a year, which is really bad information getting out into the public, just absolutely false information and, you know, information being spouted by QAnon and the the children hashtag. And, um, and I, and I, my view is that bad information is bad for the, for the movement. Um, and so yes, more work needs to be done. The biggest gap, um, honestly, like, like where to even begin. I think that, um, there, oh gosh, there's so many gaps. Um, so I think we can, it's helpful to break it down perhaps by thinking about the, the three P's or even the four P's or the five P's. Um, so prevention, protection, prosecution, and then partnership and policy. Okay. Um, there, there are questions that remain within like kind of breaking the issue down in those five different categories. And then I think it's also helpful as a framework for thinking hmm. about research questions to look at, okay, across those five P's, what do we know about the supply distribution and demand? Right. So we talk about trafficking oftentimes in economic parlance because it is an economic issue. And so you have, you know, you have the supply, which is the victims, the distribution, which are the pimps and the traffickers. And then you have the demand, the buyers. And um, now with when it comes to research on prevention. So now Mm. going back to looking at the P's with respect to supply, distribution and ban, the most research in that field has been done in terms of prevention with respect to victimization. So in other yeah. words, what are the vulnerabilities? What are the aspects? What are the things that create the vulnerabilities for 
particularly women and girls, but also trans youth and others right. to become victims for trafficking. Right. And that's where the most of the research is. And I think that at this point in the field, we have a very strong grasp on that and a that's pretty helpful. strong understanding yeah, that's of, helpful. of all of those vulnerabilities. What I think we still have a ways to, where I think we still have a ways to go, however, is this systems of is looking at it through a systems lens as opposed to kind of this um individual lens of the person so for example you know we know that um childhood sexual mm. abuse or 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 abuse abuse or neglect of any kind as a child is going to lead to significant vulnerabilities sure. for a variety of different reasons. Sure, First right. of all, lower self-esteem to be, you know, but then also potentially then going into foster care, which then is a gateway into vulnerabilities, but then potentially um, committing crimes as a juvenile, going right. into juvenile detention, which is another gateway. Yeah, a whole other, yeah. Potentially yeah. running away from home, which is another, you know, and so we, yeah. we know all of these things, but then the question is, okay, that may be at the individual level, but what about the systems level? How, mm. What are the systems that we have in place that are potentially creating these problems or if not creating, facilitating them or allowing them to persist? Sure. I think it's the systems level approaches somewhere we could go with that. Now, where I think we lack a lot of research is in terms of the question about prevention when it comes to traffickers and buyers. Okay. Yeah. So my, my, I've done some research on traffickers and, you know, spent some time interviewing traffickers that were federally prosecuted in these cases. And what I found was that in fact, um, the narrative that traffickers, at least sex traffickers, and mm -hmm. I'm not, this is not necessarily the case for those that traffic in labor, labor trafficking. But, um, yeah. yeah. But for sex traffickers, there's this common narrative that they're only motivated by money. Hmm. And I actually don't, I push back on that. I, I, I don't, that's not what, where my research has led me. That's not the conclusion that my research has allowed me to reach. Now, money is definitely a part of it. There's no question, but sure. it's not the money itself. It's what money gets you, which is power, influence, and esteem. Yeah. And now those people have, same push and pull factors as what we know to be those that are make women and girls vulnerable to being trafficked for sex, except it pushes them in a different direction. Sure. And, yeah. um, and so I think there definitely though could be more un of an understanding of how do we prevent individuals from feeling that selling other human bodies for sexual gratification is a viable way to right. gain esteem and, and gain power, power. And, um, and exert that power over other people. Um, yeah. And so yeah. that's another question. Um, same with buyers. And I think that, you know, here we can again, get into questions about childhood sexual abuse of boys and the extent to, to which that may create deviant sexual behavior as adult men. Right. Um, where they possibly, you know, start with pornography and yeah, that yeah. kind of serves as the gateway drug into purchase sex. Um, and so there's not as much research on that. And I think part of the reason why is because it's so easy for us to demonize sure. the, the traffickers and the buyers. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I think what we, 
you know, what we can all do a better job of maybe is like a more of a grace-based approach to say, you know, um, uh, they, they are victims of something too. That's right. Right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And if we believe that, I mean, I'm a believer. Um, and so I believe that, you know, God is a God of redemption. I believe that yeah. he redeems. I think that that's what he does. And that's what he does really, really well. And if we believe that victims of trafficking um, can be redeemed, if we know the research and believe the research on the ways in which the brain can re- rewire itself, yeah, that's um, right. then we have to believe that for the traffickers and the buyers as well. Yeah. So that's an area of research that I think there's a lot of questions um, that are not yet answered and that haven't been focused on. And honestly, I could go on and on and on about the research questions. Yeah, no, I think that's (laughs) excellent. Stop there. We actually, we actually almost uh, focused on like gaps in research for the entire episode here when we were planning. And so, like hearing you talk, I'm like, man, we probably could do like a whole second episode of like, let's just talk about that when you were just getting after. You know what I mean? Yeah, because. I've literally talked about one of the pieces. Right, right. Yeah, you only got to one, uh, which I appreciate so much. I mean, you speak from such a place of like such clarity, which I appreciate um, and just experience. But I think, I don't know if it was Dr. Melissa Farley who said this, but um, like one of the one of the definitions we use for trafficking here at Elijah Rising, we're trying to help people understand the problem is like trafficking is the is the exploitation of vulnerability. And so we just, we love that idea of it, like, to, to convey to people, you know, the, the depth of the problem and what actually leads to trafficking is that exploitation of vulnerability. And it's so important for people to remember that it's not just those women and the children that we're trying to reach, but it's, it is, it's the trafficker and it's the buyer too. It, we have to look at it as a holistic system um, and, and it, and attack it, work on it from every angle, which is really what you're getting at there. Um, and just the need for research on how to do that best. And I feel like the pornography, you know, angle of it has really come into the limelight, especially through the work of Exodus Cry and what they're doing around Trafficking Hub and stuff like that, which we're very appreciative of. But I, I appreciate you saying like, there needs to be more, there needs to be more work around this. Um, and so that was an excellent answer. Um, let me ask this in, in your research. Uh, Cause I know you've done some research around like public opinion and things. Uh, do you think people in the United States, like maybe some people that are listening and watching us <laughs> right now, do you think people in the United States really believe that human trafficking is a major problem where they are, like where they live. I think you're in Dallas, right? You're in the, you're in the DFW area. Um, we're in Houston, but pick any major city, pick any small town. Um, do, do people get it? I mean, do people think that they have a problem where they are? Well, in, so I did do a, a public opinion survey. Uh, we surveyed 2000 Americans, mm-hmm. um, across the United States. And we, it was a, it was a relatively long ish survey, right? And we asked a lot of different questions. One of the findings, which was fascinating, hmm. is that we asked them, how common do you believe human trafficking is globally? Yeah, right. Right. Globally. And uh, yeah, on a global scale. Globally. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like across the United or across the world, do you right. think trafficking is a significant problem? And the vast majority of people said, yes, it's a problem. Of course. Then we asked them, how big of a problem is it in the United States? And mm. they, 
said it's less of a problem in the United States than globally, but it's still a problem. Then we asked them, how big of a problem is it within your state, within your specific state in the United States? Less of a problem than in the United States. And then how big of a problem do you think it is in your locality? Yeah. It's not a problem here. (laughs) Right. So it's like, it's not a problem here. It's maybe a problem here. It's definitely a problem here. And boy, is it a problem here. Right. Yeah. And so the closer to home that it gets, the less people want to acknowledge that it is a problem. Why is that? What what do you think that is? Like, what do you think the contributing, contributing factors are to that? You know, I have my theories around yeah. it. We didn't necessarily, we weren't necessarily able to prove this empirically with sure. the survey. Sure. But my theory is based on a different kind of NIMBY. You know, NIMBY is not in my backyard. Oh, which okay. is the idea that like, you know, we all agree that we need um that we need to put our garbage somewhere, but we don't want to have the, we don't want to have the sewage in our backyard. Right. 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 And I think with trafficking, it's a different type of not in my backyard. It's a type Mm -hmm. of not in my backyard where it's, um, it's kind of like if it exists in my backyard, then that is acknowledging that there's something not right in my backyard. And I probably need to do something about it. Exactly. It comes, it comes real close to home. It comes to me and my actions and my choices. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that's what I think, I I think it's about, I think that it's in in this space in particular, it's um, very, it's, it's very comfortable to kind of other it. Um, And so it's like, well, that's a horrible problem for them, you know? Um, and so acknowledging that it's close to home means that there's something close to home that I'm not comfortable with. And right. if that's the case, then it implicates me to do something. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I don't want to do something. I don't want to do something. It, yeah. Because, you know? <laughs> because comfort and, you know, fill in the blank. We're right. going to take a break in the right. podcast. Um, and so when we come back on the other side, we're going to ask Dr. Boucher, does Houston, does Houston have a trafficking problem? Hang with us. Four years ago, we started making candles in my kitchen because we had a dream to empower women recovering from sex trafficking. After years of growing, changing, and perfecting what we truly believe to be the perfect candle, we now sell goods across the country that empower women who are recovering from sex trafficking. And we want you to help us so that we can give more jobs to women that are in our program. Go to shop.elijahrising.org and you can see some of the most amazing amazing goods you've ever tried, as well as empower the next woman to have a future after sex trafficking. And we have a special code for all of our podcast listeners. Just use the code podcast when you check out for a special discount. Hey, welcome back. Okay, Dr. Boucher, let's let's ask the question directly. Um, I know you're not in Houston right now, but uh, does Houston have a trafficking problem? Yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that answer. <laughs> and that doesn't that doesn't make Houston unique, right? I mean, right. everywhere has a trafficking problem. So right, just to right. say not to not like point fingers at Houston. Um yeah. Houston has done a phenomenal job to try to tackle their yeah. trafficking problem. But yes. Houston has a trafficking problem. Yeah. So our my first my personal first introduction to you uh, was your work done a few years ago. I think in 2017, uh, you and a colleague wrote an article published in the Journal of Human Trafficking, 
And the title was, I'm going to read it here, Estimating Demand for Illicit Massage Businesses in Houston, Texas. Um, and so I wonder if you could take a little bit of time here to kind of tell us about the focus uh, and the primary findings of that study. And, uh, and then like a secondary follow-up question to that will be, you know, why did you pick Houston for that? Um, and so just to set the context a little bit first is, you know, this is a study, uh, Dr. Boucher is going to talk about this study if you're listening, if you're watching, but this is a study that has really, really informed the work of Elijah Rising. I mean, we reference it all the time. We use it in most of our awareness presentations uh, and all the ways that we try to mobilize the city to, to tackle the issue of trafficking. We point to this study, uh, which is the, the main reason why I asked uh, Dr. Boucher to come on the podcast today was really to get to the study and to tell us about it. So what did you find? Um, what was the focus? And then, and then why Houston? So uh, first of all, we found that, that the illicit massage industry in Houston, Texas, grosses approximately $107 million annually. That's a lot of money. So that was the big finding. Yeah. Um, now, it is a lot of money. And it's, it, to put it in context or to put it in perspective, um, the illicit massage industry is just one sliver of the overarching right. underground sex economy in any given city, including Houston. That's so right. we're talking about $107 million for one segment of the commercial sex yeah so like that doesn't include the cantina trade that we have in the city that doesn't include right. like the bisonette track that doesn't include what's happening in strip yep. clubs in the city that doesn't yeah we yep. could there's a long list this is just one yep. form that the injustice takes in houston yeah great note yep it doesn't include online prostitution online, yep. um right. you know right so I think that that's really important um, to say, like we can list out, as you, as you said, we can list out all of the other venues of mm -hmm. commercial sex and where we know sex trafficking takes place and, and say, well, wow, if this is 107 million is just one aspect of it, man, uh, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a big economy. Yeah. Um, so there, and, and, and we estimated that there's roughly 12 customers per day at each establishment. So, that was kind of overall what we found. Um, the reason that we did this study was there were a couple different reasons. The first is that uh, there's really not a lot of research on uh, the illicit massage industry. Mm. And so that was one reason to kind of make a foray into, into that type of work and specifically yeah. looking at that one sector. The other reason is that, you know, there's, um, studying demand and estimating demand is is difficult to do. And there have been a lot of, not a lot, actually, there's not been a lot at all. There's been a couple yeah. studies that have examined um, demand for online prostitution, specifically by looking at responses to ads that are placed. And so, you know, you'll right. post a fake ad and then see how many people call, et cetera. But from who calls about the ad to who actually shows up to make the transaction is a, we don't know what that ratio is necessarily. Sure. And so to really understand the exact amount of money that is, that is being transacted, you kind of have to actually see who shows up, you know, who 
is showing up, who is going in the door. And the only way to do that is to count people, like yeah. actually count them, you know? And so um, we kind of just figured out a way that we would count the people that went in the door. And it just, you know, it, it helps that there's an online review board for right. illicit massage businesses. Right. And those review boards kind of give us a, um, an average amount that the average person pays when they go into the illicit massage business. They provide information on what the door fee is and then what the, you know, the extra tip amount is that they provide. Yeah. Um, and so we were able to use all of that information that we scraped off of the um, online review boards and kind of, you know, couple it with the demand estimates that we did by counting people that walked in in order to then, you know, do a, extrapolate out to all of the massage businesses in Houston to get yeah. to that 107 million number. And, um, and Houston, one of the reasons we chose Houston um, is because it actually is one of the cities with the largest number of illicit massage businesses listed on this particular review site. Yeah. Just so that your listeners are aware, there are more illicit massage businesses in Houston than there are McDonald's or Starbucks. Yeah. 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 And, and you guys, uh, you and your colleague, I mean, you, you showed that because you collected, I mean, you, you identified how, how many, uh, IMBs did you identify in the study? Well, initially we scraped over 300 from okay, the review yeah. site. Um, yeah. but then we did a bunch of research and, and were able to discern that about, um, uh, 82% of those were actually open. So we figured that mm. there is about 18% that at any given time may have maybe listed on the site, but may have closed. Now, the thing to note about them is when they close, that doesn't mean they're closed permanently. Right. Usually they close temporarily and open up either in the exact same location under a different name right. or in a different location. Um, but nevertheless, we, we ended up... Um, it was like, I think 280 something that yeah. were total across Houston. Yeah. And I wonder um, in that study, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes, if you're kind of listening to this going, oh my gosh, how can I get my hands on that? And um, and Dr. Boucher, we'll give her a chance to tell us where you can find all of her research at the end of the show. Um, she's got a great website where that's kind of collected. But um in your study, I, I wonder, like, is there anything that really stood out to you as somebody who, you know, you're not just a researcher, you care, like you care about the issue. And you, I, I think I can, if I may be so bold to make an assumption, but I think you care about the human beings that are being sold in those, in those businesses. Um, so what kind of jumped out at you as you looked at the research, as you counted those heads, as you figured out the dollar amounts, what was the, what was a surprise to somebody like you? Um, there's a lot of things that were surprising. I mean, after we had that number in Houston, we did some additional calculations to try to extrapolate out to the entire country. And obviously, um, you know, there are some methodological, um, issues with it. Like I, I would, I sure. would like to have a little bit more precision in doing that, but, um, but overall, this is over a $2 billion industry in yeah. the United States. Just the IMBs. Um, just the IMBs. Yeah. I mean, that is shocking. That yeah. was shocking to me. Um, 
So that was one thing. The other thing is thinking about the number of people that this affects. And so I estimate that there's roughly 30,000, 25 to 30,000 women that are, um, that are working in these establishments. Mm -hmm. And now these are women who may be, um, may be here under fraudulent with, with fraudulent documents. They don't right. necessarily know whether they're here legally or illegally. Right. Um, you know, they are most likely in some form of debt bondage to mm. the people that brought them here, which is the whole organized crime ring. Um, and I mean, this is a lot of people that are being impacted. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that I think is really shocking to note is looking at who's showing up to buy these services. Mm. And it, there's, there is, there's no profile at all. It's everybody from multimillionaires driving Porsches, literally. I mean, we've seen everything from Porsches show up in the parking lot to like beater cars, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and everything in between. Yeah. Minivans, um, wedding rings, not wedding rings. I mean, the whole gamut. And yeah. so um, it's, it, it's it, the other thing that was surprising for me for in Houston in particular, which actually has not been the case in every other city that I've done. So I've also done these, this similar study for Atlanta and for mm -hmm. Denver. Yeah. And, um, but in Houston, the high demand time was during the lunch hour between yeah. 12 PM and 2 PM in the afternoon. And so, um, that's also really, really shocking to me and disturbing, um, to think about. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's men on lunch breaks. I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, that's what that says, right? I mean, that's, that's what that means. Yeah. And, uh, and it is disturbing. It should be disturbing. And, um, yeah, sometimes I'm, I, I don't even have good words for like how to respond to it. Um, and I'm very familiar with that study and, and just like anecdotally, um, you've got the research to back it up, but just anecdotally in our, in, you know, in our, in the, in the field work, um, I mean, we can definitely corroborate, you know, like this is the, that's what's happening. That's what we see. Um, this, that's the truth. I mean, you, your research just um, confirms what we see with our own eyes every day. Yeah. So, so why does any of this matter, though, to the average citizen? If, 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 if somebody's watching us right now, if somebody's listening to us right now in their car driving around, or, or maybe they're watching us on YouTube on their phone or whatever, what's the main takeaway, do you think? Like, what, what, um, what do we want them to hear? What do we want them to know? Um, I them to know that, oh man, where, I mean, honestly, where do we even begin? Um, yeah. if you, if you care about human beings, if you care about humanity, if you believe that people are created in the image of God, then this is, this is completely unacceptable. Yeah. Um, you know, the talking just again about the IMBs, the, the individuals that are going and buying these services, they can't even really speak the language of the ladies that are working there. They're not communicating. They have completely and utterly dehumanized these women. They're not, they don't care about them as people. They care yeah. about them as property and something that can be used for their end 
purpose, for their benefit. It's all about taking instead of giving. And I think the biggest thing for me in, in just in the issue of trafficking in general is, I mean, for me, it goes back to the heart of God. And Mm -hmm. if we live in a, if we live in a way that's reflective of Philippians two, talking about how Jesus did not consider equality with God, something to be in one, in one um, translation, it says something to be exploited. That's right. Which really speaks to me because it says he did not consider his privilege, which what a privilege. He was equal with God in heaven from the beginning of time. The highest he level came of privilege. Down to earth, the highest level of privilege that yeah. we cannot even fathom with yeah. our temporal brain. Gave that up. Did not consider it something to be exploited for his own gain, but came to earth, humbled himself in the form of a man and then a bond servant to die on behalf of us. Yeah. And it's like, that is, and Paul is saying, that's our model. Live Mm. like that. Be like that, you know? And it's like, he could have taken, Jesus was the epitome of someone that could have just taken, right? But no, he gave, he poured himself out. And I think that when we think about trafficking, you know, it's all when it fundamentally, when you break it down, we can talk about the research, we can talk about the complications, we can talk about the gaps and all of these things. And it is complicated, it's yeah. very, very complicated. But when you boil it down and you break it down to its simplest form, it is people being exploited. Why? Because other people are taking from them for their own gain. That's right. And what is that? That is evil <laughs> that is the that is sin that is the exact yeah. opposite of how we are ought to live yeah and so not to preach a message here preach a sermon but no, for me it. that's what i want people to know i want people to know that you know we have a responsibility those of us who are privileged in a way and i consider myself among them i'm the first one to acknowledge that i have experienced immense privilege in my life. Do not use your privilege for yourself. Don't exploit your privilege, but pour yourself out for the benefit of those who really need your help. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, man, that is... you. You brought it home. I mean, that's the whole deal. It's like we can talk about research, we can talk about empirical data, we can talk about all these things. We can uh, we can see the problem. We can point to peer-reviewed articles and journal publishings. But the point of the matter is, it's like people made in the image of God are being exploited. Like that yes. is the injustice. Yes. And even if that yes. were only one human being, we should care. And we should. And if if it's yes. one human being in our city, we should care, and we should say it's unacceptable, and we should do something about it. So. Uh, that's that's the story, right? That's that's the whole point of why you do what you do and why we do what we do, and so many other agencies and individuals and concerned citizens, et cetera, et cetera. Mm, that was good. Yeah. Um, I appreciate I appreciate that response. Um, so, just kind of in closing here uh, on the episode, I wonder if there's anything like we haven't covered that you think it's important for people to hear. I mean, maybe that was the preeminent, you know, statement that you just made there. But uh, did we did we cover everything you think that's important? I think so. 
Yeah. I mean, okay. I think that, you know, we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about the yeah. public opinion work. We've <laughs> talked right. about, you know, gaps in research about the illicit massage industry in Houston. Um, so we have covered a lot of ground um, yeah. and boiled it all down. So like, yeah. yes, it's a, it's a super complicated issue. But at the end of the day, it's actually pretty simple. It is. It is. Yeah. So how can we support your work, Dr. Vanessa Boucher? Uh, what, what are you doing? And this is kind of your spot, your space. So tell, you know, let the listeners and the viewers here, um, you know, I, 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 hopefully they've gained an appreciation for your voice, for your experience, for your expertise, um, and, and for your work. So tell them how they can find you and how they can support what you're doing. Well, you know, my, what I'm doing right now that is different from my research is yeah. um, I actually founded a company that is providing jobs to survivors of trafficking in India and the U.S. And you alluded to it at the very beginning of the episode. That's really the best way for people to support, to support my work and to support, yeah. not, not me, don't support me, but support the women that we're serving. And, um, you know, I think on the heels of what we were talking about before the question of, you know, how do you know you're making an impact? How do you know you're mm. making a dent? Oh, there's so much. Where do you even start? Mm. So you start with the one person, you know, you start with the one. And so I found myself um, leading a study abroad on transnational human trafficking in India. And there was one woman mm. who said <laughs> to me, I don't want to tell you my story. You're just going to exploit my story. Yeah. And that makes you no different than the people that exploit my body. Wow. And when I asked her what she needed, she said, I need dignified employment to get out of this dirty business. And she was the one. And that's why, you know, I don't, I, I don't like it when people say, be the voice for the voiceless. That's hogwash to me because <laughs> nobody is voiceless. That's right. Hey, nobody that's right. Come on. The problem is us. The problem is we're not listening because we're too busy talking as I talk, right? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, she spoke and all she needed was someone to listen. Mm. All she needed was someone to listen and someone with the ability to act on her, on her need. And so um, that was why Severa was birthed. Severa mm. was birthed to give this one woman a job and now we are employing seven survivors of trafficking in India. They have wow. all moved out of the brothels. They are all now living completely independent lives. Um, and they have learned how to read and write and they're gaining new skills and their confidence has just gone through the roof. Um, and then we also have two survivors in the U S so far that we are providing jobs to. And, you know, we've seen tremendous outcomes from the work and just like the, the complete transformation that's taking place in their lives. But it's at the end of the day, though, it's not about outcomes. It's about obedience. Mm. And so that's what I would, that's the other thing I would leave people with is, you know, don't obsess over is anything that I'm doing efficacious, you know, mm. is anything that I'm doing making a difference in the world. If you are being called, then just be obedient to the call and yeah. the outcomes are not for you to worry about. Yeah. So 
But check out Severa. The website is severa.com, S-A-V-H-E-R-A.com, S-A-V-H-E-R-A.com. And um, Severa is a Hindi word that means new beginning. And the company was named by our very first employees. That's what we're all about is holistic wellness from the inside out. And we want wellness, holistic wellness, not just for our employees, but for all of our constituents, including our customers, which is why our product category is also all about wellness. So I would love, love to be supported in that way. Um, check out Severa and, you know, as we grow, follow along with, with our, with our story and be part of our journey. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Um, I appreciate you so much. We appreciate the work that you've done in so many different areas. And uh, I just want to thank you for your voice uh, and for giving your life to this issue. I mean, in multiple facets, right? Um, you wear many hats. And I know your husband is passionate about this issue too. And so you guys are kind of coming at it as a family. And um, yeah. it's just, it's we appreciate y'all so much. So thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. We'll see you on the next episode of the Elijah Rising Podcast. Thank you for joining us today for this episode. If you were inspired by this content today, please share, rate, and leave a review. Also, please consider making a donation at ElijahRising.org slash donate. Your support helps us continue the vital mission to combat sex trafficking. Until next time.